This is Crime Beat, brought to you by Ad Taxi. Take your digital advertising to a higher level. With metrics that matter, Ad Taxi can boost your campaign performance, increase efficiency, and optimize your results. To learn more about our customized solutions, visit adtaxi.com. The following contains language that, while it may be completely appropriate for candid discussions of bank heists, car chases, penal codes, betrayal, firearms, lying, corruption in the Oval Office, love, and larceny, it may not be suitable for more delicate audiences. You're listening to Crime Beat, a behind-the-scenes podcast of fascinating true crime stories. This is Season 1, Stealing Nixon's Millions. Harry Barber laughs when he talks about President Richard Nixon. I love Tricky Dicky. Uh, he thought he was sharper than everybody else, but he got caught. You want to go deep? Let's go deep. Let's talk about Watergate. For this part of the podcast, you do not need a tinfoil hat. I need you focused, in your right mind. What you're about to hear may sound bizarre, but it's not bizarre at all. On Monday, March 27, 1972, the FBI discovered a breached vault in Laguna Niguel. Frank Calley, the agent on the case, said he had no idea what the motive for the burglary was, other than to take a bunch of money from the United California Bank. Harry Barber, the getaway driver, said the target had always been President Richard Nixon. Master thief Emil Dinzio had heard Nixon was hiding money there, and he was after Nixon's millions. Some of that dirty money, Emil believed, had come from Nixon scamming the dairy farmers and from the Teamsters' contribution to Nixon as part of a quid pro quo to get their leader, Jimmy Hoffa, out of jail. Could seven guys from Youngstown, Ohio, have changed the world? My name is Keith Sharon. I'm a reporter for the Southern California News Group based in Orange County. In 2003, I wrote a 10-part series for the Orange County Register about the biggest bank heist in the history of the United States when seven guys from Youngstown tried to steal $30 million from President Nixon. Then I wrote a screenplay based on the same material. I have been obsessed with this burglary for almost 20 years. This podcast is going to cover the half-century history of the top U.S. bank burglary of all time. From the moment it was just a twinkle in the eye of a master thief to the long weekend in March of 1972 when the crew went after Nixon's money to the investigation in which only one of the thieves got away to the night this story will appear on the big screen as a Hollywood movie. This is episode four of Stealing Nixon's Millions, The Getaway. For this part, you have to remember what was going on in Washington in 1972. Nixon, an increasingly unpopular president, was involved in a re-election campaign. The Vietnam War was raging. Students were protesting in the streets. On January 27th, G. Gordon Liddy, the creepiest of the creeps, approached Attorney General John Mitchell with a plan to help Nixon get re-elected. Liddy said he needed a budget of $1 million to execute this plan. 
The plan involved gathering information on Nixon's opponents, the Democrats. They were running anti-war candidate George McGovern. Remember him? Probably not. Liddy wanted to break into the Watergate Hotel, plant bugs and steal documents from the offices of Democratic Party Chairman Larry O'Brien. Liddy was told no. That plan was too wild, too costly, too risky. Liddy wouldn't take no for an answer. In February, Liddy proposed the plan again. He cut the price tag in half this time. Liddy was told no again. Then, over the weekend of March 24th to March 27th, thieves broke into the United California Bank to steal funds ticketed for Nixon's re-election campaign. They had pulled off the burglary after a tip from the Teamsters. They were trying to get the Teamsters' money back, the money they had donated to the Nixon campaign to get Jimmy Hoffa out of jail. Could Nixon have figured out that he was the target of the burglary? Could he have figured out that longtime Democratic supporters, the Teamsters, were in cahoots with the thieves? Could Nixon have felt like he was under attack and he had to hit back? Two things happened in the days after the burglary. At first, Callie had a team of about eight agents working on the case. After about a week, that number shot up. The FBI assigned 125 agents to work on the Laguna Niguel case. FBI agent Paul Chamberlain, who was based in Los Angeles and was one of the agents added to the case, told me this was the biggest deployment of agents that anyone had ever heard of. Why would the FBI use so many resources if they didn't even know what was missing? Harry Barber knows what the president knew and when he knew it. He sent 125 agents to check us out, didn't he? Now what does this tell anybody? You sons of bitches, you took my money, but I'm going to get you. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to read this story. There was no official record of what Emil Denzio's crew took from that bank. The first newspaper reports said about $50,000 had been taken. From all appearances, this heist was not a big deal. And then there's this. On March 30, 1972, three days after Denzio's crew made off with millions from those safe deposit boxes, a meeting of the president's men was held in Key Biscayne, Florida. Attorney General John Mitchell was there. Mitchell's aide Frederick LaRue was there. Campaign director Jeb Magruder was there. Chief of Staff aide Gordon Strachan was there. In front of all these men, G. Gordon Liddy pitched his break-into-the-Watergate idea one more time. Famously, there is a dispute about whether Mitchell called the White House from that meeting. Magruder said he did. Mitchell said he didn't. No call from Key Biscayne shows up on the president's daily diary from March 30, 1972. Here's the bottom line. Three days after Emil Denzio's crew went after Nixon's money, the Watergate break-in was approved. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to believe we may have been in a cause-and-effect situation. In 2003, I talked to Charles Colson, who had been special counsel to President Nixon. I asked him if the bank heist had motivated Nixon to approve Watergate. Colson said I had a vivid imagination. I called dirty trickster Donald Segretti, too. Do you remember Donald Segretti? He worked for the committee to re-elect the president. Of all the characters in the Watergate scandal, he may have been my favorite. In 1972, he was a recent graduate of USC where he was part of the so-called USC Mafia. Segretti liked to pull political tricks on his rivals, like ordering dozens of pizza to be delivered to a Democratic rally and then leaving them with the bill. 
One time, he and some other operatives forged a letter claiming it was written by Democratic Senator Edmund Muskie, in which he used offensive language to malign Canadians. Segretti said there was no connection between the bank heist and Watergate. The Watergate break-in happened on June 17, 1972. Five guys from Miami tried to steal documents from the Democratic headquarters. They got caught by a hotel security guard. And yada yada, Nixon had to resign from office. Check out what Melissa Dinzio, Amel's daughter, told WOCA Radio. If my father had been asked to do the Watergate burglary that uh, President <laughs> Nixon, none of this would have ever happened because it was just uh, totally amateurs that, that committed that one. In those first few days of the investigation, there wasn't much for 125 FBI agents to do. Agent Frank Calley started looking at the names of people whose valuables had been stolen from the safe deposit boxes. Callie and his partner Jim Conway put together a report with the modus operandi of the crime. That's really all they had. Plus, the hunch that the burglars were from out of town. They sent it out via telex machine, the kind that printed out dot matrix messages on a scroll of paper. Well, we knew that they weren't from here. So we had a communication sent out to all FBI officers around the country. In the beginning, Emil Dinzio looked like even more of a genius than he was. There were no clues. A month went by. Nothing. Emil and his brother James were back at home near Youngstown. Ronnie was living with his parents. Harry was having the time of his life. He was flying all over the place just because he wanted to feel what it was like to travel on the biggest airplane he had ever seen, the 747. Nobody was chasing them. Still, Harry could not relax. I flew to the Bahamas, Freeport. I'm in the goddamn casino, and here's a kid from Youngstown, Ohio in there. Harry slipped out without being noticed. If the world would have stopped right there on the 1st of May, 1972, Harry and Emil and the crew would have got away with it. They were scot-free. Harry remembers seeing a pile of money dumped on the floor of a house just outside Youngstown. It was just part of the loot from the United California Bank. They had so much money, they buried $1.4 million in cash in a field near Youngstown. It was enough to keep them all rich and happy for a long time. But the world, as it does, kept spinning. One more thing you have to know about the first week of May in 1972. And no, I'm not talking about the birth in Hayward, California, of a baby named Dwayne Johnson, who we would later come to know as The Rock, I'm talking about a very important death. On May 2, 1972, J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI, died of a heart attack at his home in Washington, D.C. Hoover's death set off a chain of events, including Nixon's appointment of L. Patrick Gray to replace him. By appointing Gray, Nixon passed over associate FBI director Mark Felt for the position he coveted. Mark Felt would later be revealed as Deep Throat, the source who helped Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein break so many stories about the Watergate investigation. I wish all the president's men would have happened in a bank so we could have included it on our list of the best bank heist movies. Number six is Heat, with LAPD detective Al Pacino battling bank robber Robert De Niro. Heat is a slick Michael Mann movie based on a real-life manhunt for ex-con Neil McCauley. It's got a spectacular shootout in downtown L.A. How more civilians don't get slaughtered in movie shootouts, I'll never know. Val Kilmer's in it, and he has a ponytail. 
I don't know why I mentioned that. I just thought it was noteworthy. Number five is Baby Driver, which is probably so high on this list solely on the strength of its opening scene. It's shot from the point of view of the getaway driver, who they call Baby. He's listening to music, drumming on the dashboard while his crew is robbing the bank. And then, all hell breaks loose in perfect time with the music. One piece of trivia, do you know Baby's real name? It's mentioned in the movie. Anybody? Bueller? No, it's not Bueller. It's Miles. What a cool name for a getaway driver. The real-life Harry Barber could have given Miles a run for his money. I was talking about the death of J. Edgar Hoover. Here's my question. Could Hoover's death have had another effect? Did a team of thieves from Youngstown, Ohio, go out for one more heist to celebrate the demise of the guy who they hated? Remember what Melissa Dinzio said to WOCA Radio. I can remember my mother (coughs) saying multiple times throughout my life to my father, Emil, how much money is enough? On May 4th, 1972, two days after Hoover's death, Emil and his crew were the best bank burglars who ever lived. And they were free. And no one had started chasing them yet. But there was this little bank in Lordstown, Ohio. It is an addiction. It's a rush. Oh, really? It was just a 23-minute drive from Youngstown, up Highway 680, then north on Interstate 80. The little bank had such an easy exterior alarm. All you needed was a squirt or two of liquid styrofoam. You know what's going to happen next, right? Emil didn't even need a full crew. Just a couple of guys burgled that Lordstown bank. Harry and Ronnie weren't even there. Emil might have got away with it if it didn't so much resemble the same kind of job five weeks earlier in Laguna Niguel. The similarities didn't even register at first. It was still almost three weeks before anyone figured it out. The problem, from Emil's point of view, is that he was always one of the usual suspects in bank burglaries in the Midwest. So when the Cleveland FBI office started to suspect Emil, They wondered if he had any connection to Southern California, where another bank had been knocked over with liquid styrofoam in the alarm. Didn't Emil Dinzio have a sister who moved to L.A.? Well, what do you know? He did. On May 24, 1972, an FBI agent in Cleveland called an FBI agent in Los Angeles, and kaboom. The first link between the two crimes was made. Frank Calley heard Emil Dinzio's name for the first time. Suddenly, the 125 FBI agents assigned to the Laguna Niguel case had something to do. They checked every flight between Cleveland and L.A. They found Emil and his crew on a flight just before the heist. They used their real names. Callie always did his homework, so he learned everything he could about Emil Dinzio. He saw Emil had been suspected in several crimes that were never solved. He surmised that Emil had gotten away with millions of dollars. Emil, he thought, was a high roller. He had dozens of FBI agents taking Emil's photo to luxury hotels all around Los Angeles. So we gave him more credit than we're worth. We figured, well, they, they, they flew in here, so they stayed in Beverly Hills and big hotels near the LAX. So we flooded the area with FBI agents and checked all the Beverly Strip. Those searches turned up nothing. All they did, in hindsight, was proved that the FBI didn't know anything about Emil Dinzio. He wasn't the type to stay in luxury hotels. FBI agents flooded the taxi line at LAX, showing Emil's picture to cab drivers. 
After hours and hours of searching, they finally found a guy who remembered the $100 tip. Remember what everybody said about Emil. He was generous to a fault. The driver remembered taking Emil and his crew to a house in Southgate. Callie and Conway went to the house on San Carlos Avenue and met Viola Barber, Harry's mother. Ronnie was there, too. Harry was not. Quick story about Viola Barber. I talked to her on the phone once. She cussed me out. When the FBI left her house, Viola got on the phone. My mother called and said, the boogeyman's looking for you. Right, and that means the FBI. Callie got another hunch. He sent his fellow FBI agents to check the closest hotels to the Barber address, and that's when they found the Jubilee Motor Inn, where Emil and Chuck Mulligan had stayed about a mile away. Callie got search warrants for the phone records of calls made from their room. Bingo. First, he found calls to a number at the West Nine Villas, about a mile from the United California Bank. He went inside that condo and found fingerprints of all seven members of Dinzio's crew. The place was immaculate. It had already been cleaned up. You could see like a, a film like when there's a little bit of furniture polished over everything, just like they wiped it all clean. And they had washed the dishes. But the idiots forgot. <laughs> they washed the dishes, but when they put, lifted them up, put them back, the prince, we found prints on some of the dishes. Harry, as you might expect, said the FBI never got fingerprints off any dishes. They're lying sons of bitches. They, dishes were in there. But they were washed. What am I going to do? Go say you lying sons of bitches, I know I washed them. How'd they get the fingerprints? My man, how old are you? I'm 54. I could get your fingerprint off anything you had here. Right. I'm telling you what happened. I was there. And this is what pisses me off. If you're going to say something and do something, why do you have to change the goddamn story? What Harry is saying is this. He believes the FBI knew the Dinzio crew did the crime, but they didn't have enough evidence to get them. So they lied and said they found fingerprints in the condo. He was in charge of making sure there were no fingerprints in the condo. It was personal to him. Here's the thing. The condo was only a small part of the FBI's case. And now a couple of words about other things we do here at the Southern California News Group. At the Orange County Register... We'll keep City Hall honest, corporations accountable, and report on local sports, events, and issues in your community, accurately and objectively. And that's worth paying for. To subscribe, call 1-877-469-6133. That's 1-877-469-6133. The phone records from the Jubilee Motor Inn also led to a home in Tustin, the home of Gunnery Sergeant Early Dawson. Uh-oh. Remember Emil Dinzio's rule? Always torch the car? Callie drove out to Tustin. I pulled the Orange County records and I located a file on Earl Dawson uh, for uh, only serious thing. Nothing serious on him, but he had a little problem with the bottle. And he'd been arrested a couple times for DUI or drunk in public. I don't recall it right now. And he lived in Tustin, and the real thing that caught me, he was from Youngstown, Ohio, where all our suspects were from Youngstown, Ohio. I went by his house to, uh, to uh, interview him, and uh, the garage door was open. And so I rang the doorbell and got no answer. But uh, I remember seeing in there a car and ran the, got the license plate off the car that was sitting in that 
in there. The car was a 62 Olds Super 88. It was registered to a Jimmy Eldon Wright of Glendale. A meticulous researcher, Callie couldn't find a Jimmy Eldon Wright of Glendale. He wondered what a car registered to a bogus name was doing sitting in early Dawson's garage. They found early the next day at the Walnut Room, the seedy bar in Tustin. It was Early's favorite place. Tom Wayne and I went off to interview Dawson and we went to his uh, house first. He was at home again. We went down to the Walnut Room. It was early. It was mid-morning at the, at the latest. And he was in there having a toddy. And uh, so we introduced ourselves to, to Earl. And uh, he was very pleasant, but he was very guarded as well. He hadn't... Uh, Told us he was a former Marine, a retired Marine, out of Youngstown. So we moved the interview. We knew it was going to the bar. It's a very poor place to do it. So we said, mind if we talk to you at your home just now? So we came back to his house. And he was mentioning that he was from Youngstown. And that he had a oh boy, buddy by the name Mulligan, I think. Charlie Mulligan. Charlie Mulligan. Wanted to uh, go out and take a look at the car. So we... I figured we needed a search warrant. Since it wasn't Earl's, he couldn't give us consent to search. So we figured we'd get a search warrant for the car. Looking in, I could uh, see in the car a lot of dust, just like it was on the, uh, in the bank at the time. Just complete in the back seat. And you could see the, some pieces of broken tools. And I think there were these uh, cotton gloves. They eventually got a search warrant for the car. This is where it gets good. On June 2nd, 1972, while they were searching the car in Early Dawson's garage, the phone rang. It was Chuck Mulligan calling from Youngstown. Callie whispered to Early, asking permission to listen in on the call. Chuck said he was flying out tonight and he wanted to pick up the car. If Chuck intended to torch the car, it was too late. Callie told Early to set up a meeting with Chuck at the Walnut Room. The trap was set. When the search warrant got approved, Here's the list of what investigators found in the trunk of the 62 old Super 88. Sledgehammers, drill bits, torches, hacksaws, bolt cutters, flashlights, walkie-talkies, a shotgun, and a Jersey-made ice cream container with Ronnie Barber's fingerprints on it. When they finished searching the trunk, Callie gathered up a bunch of undercover FBI guys and raced to the walnut room. This was the setting, the dark and dingy walnut room was filled with a bunch of FBI agents pretending to be the usual drunk clientele. Callie positioned himself at the end of the bar. He told Early Dawson not to get drunk. He needed Early to do his best to get Chuck talking about the heist. Early was supposed to ease into the conversation, get Chuck talking about the weather or the Pittsburgh Pirates or anything to get him to feel comfortable. Early swigged a couple of beers to calm his nerves. And finally, into this bar full of G-men, walked Chuck Mulligan. Chuck greeted his old friend and had no idea what was happening. Here's the problem. Early Dawson was kind of drunk. And he wasn't subtle. Without any small talk, Early came right out with it. Did you have something to do with the $2 million burglary at Laguna Niguel? Chuck laughed it off. Early, you know me better than that, Chuck said. What the hell was Early Dawson doing? Callie and all the other FBI agents were straining to listen. They couldn't have been happy. Then Chuck blurted out, Besides, it was more like five million. That's what the FBI calls an admission of guilt. They had what they needed. 
so they set up in the parking lot, waiting to pounce. Early and Chuck took their time. They had a couple of beers. They played a couple of games of pool. Finally, they headed outside. Here's how Frank Callie described what happened next. I, I got on, on the horn and just told him that Mulligan is going to be leaving. Like, what's the instructions? And I said, take him down when he gets when he gets to the car. So we we, we went outside and rested Mulligan outside. How did Mulligan react? Oh, he was very sound, like a spoiled sport, like that. You guys, he was profane, but not super profane, but profane, angry. Uh, did he resist? No, he was, well, no, he couldn't. There was just too many. For his help with catching Chuck Mulligan, Early Dawson and his wife became lifetime members of the Federal Witness Protection Program. Early resurfaced again only once to testify against his old buddy. After that, the Dawsons were in the wind. Court records show that James Dinzio tried to bribe Early Dawson to change his testimony. Early refused the money. Callie told me the mob wanted Early Dawson to become the late Early Dawson. They ordered a hit, but the FBI stopped their plan. With fingerprint evidence, the FBI started rounding up the members of Emil Dinzio's crew. They got a huge break when Charlie Brockles flipped. He started ratting out his co-conspirators. Brockles was not indicted, and he too disappeared in the witness protection program. He agreed to testify against all of them. On June 20, 1972, the FBI arrested Phil Christopher in his pajamas. They found $32,420 in his closet. Some of the money was from Laguna Niguel, and some of it was from Lordstown. The FBI waited a week before they descended on Boardman, Ohio, where Emil lived with his wife and three daughters. The local police had been getting some strange phone calls. A couple of kids found $1.4 million buried in a field near Dinzio's house. That money was eventually traced to the United California Bank. On June 25th, the family of a 12-year-old boy named Michael Sinkley called the police. Overnight, Michael had seen a man digging in his front yard. The Sinkleys lived across the street from the Dinzios. The man he had seen was Emil. On June 27, 1972, the FBI found $98,600 in a thermos buried in the Sinkley's yard. Melissa Dinzio told me once that she always hated the little kid who lived across the street. Emil was arrested without a fight. He wrote in his book, Inside the Vault, that the FBI faked fingerprint evidence to tie him to the Laguna Niguel burglary. Meanwhile, Harry and Ronnie were driving all over the country, trying to stay one step ahead of the FBI. Ronnie's luck ran out in Rochester, New York. Harry was out getting groceries when the FBI converged on the apartment where the brothers had been staying. Harry was driving back when he saw dozens of police cars on the street. He figured his brother had been grabbed, so he got the hell out of there. Harry raced west toward Buffalo, then south toward Cleveland. He just kept driving with no idea where he would wind up. There are two more arrests I need to tell you about. Viola Barber, Harry's mother, was working in Sears when the FBI got her. They figured if they put some heat on her, Harry would come out of hiding. That strategy didn't work out too well. Viola was eventually released. All they had done was make Harry mad. They went and arrested my mother. You're a goddamn low scumbag to begin with. Now that, I, I, I've talked to you for years, that pisses you off more than anything. Absolutely. You've got to be a low lifer. Just because you can't find me don't mean you got to go harass my mother. And then there was the arrest of the other Harry in this story. 
some of the money from the United California Bank ended up in the hands of an underworld luminary. His name was Harry Hall, or Harry Helfgott, or Harry Haler, or Harry Sinclair Jr., or Al Berman. He almost had as many names as he had arrests. Harry Hall was like Zelig, a figure who ends up in the background of every major story. Harry Hall was a con man, a money launderer, and an informant for the FBI. He was once Jack Ruby's roommate. Jack Ruby, you might remember, shot the guy who killed John F. Kennedy. Harry Hall testified several times before the Warren Commission. Harry attended the funeral of Marilyn Monroe with his buddy and her former husband, Joe DiMaggio. Harry Hall was also pals with Jimmy Hoffa, and that probably explains why he ended up with $175,000 worth of securities from the Laguna Niguel heist. One day, Harry walked into the Amalgamated Trust and Savings Bank in Chicago and tried to get a $300,000 loan using that bank loot as collateral. When you count Veronica Barber, Harry Hall was the seventh person arrested in connection with the bank burglary. All the burglars got sentenced between 5 and 20 years. They all served less for good behavior. The only person who got away, fittingly enough, was the getaway driver. Harry Barber. Being a fugitive is not as easy as you think it is. Tell You're always that. looking. You're always looking over your shoulder. Sure, always. And you'll be surprised how many times you go into different places and run into people you know. What do you do then? You look at them and say, Mom is the word, motherfucker. Next time on Crime Beats Season 1, Stealing Nixon's Millions. It can't last forever. Harry Barber starts a new life and tries to live without attracting attention to himself. Everywhere he goes, he's surrounded by cops. The best way you can support this podcast is to give us high ratings and reviews and tell your friends to check out our work. Thanks for listening. Crime Beat Season 1 was produced by the Southern California News Group. The executive editor was Frank Pine. The senior editor was Todd Harmonson. Production and original music by Michael Crow. Sound editing by Jeff Gritchen. Graphics by Kurt Snibby. And I want to give special thanks to podcasters who inspired this work. Amy Wilson and Amber Hunt on Accused. Sarah Koenig on Serial. Brian Reed on S-Town. Chris Gofford on Dirty John. Madeline Barron on In the Dark. Nate DeMeo on The Memory Palace. And Phoebe Judge on Criminal.